We all know that liquidity matters in investing, but how is it measured, how is it managed, and how can you use it to deliver returns? I'm Robin Grew, and in this season of Long Story Short, I'm going to dive into the importance of managing liquidity and strategies you can use to put those ideas into practice. I'll be talking to investment professionals, analysts, and strategists so that they can share their insights and examples of using liquidity and liquid alternatives to deliver better results for investors and savers. I'm delighted to be joined by Katie Martin, the FT's markets editor and writer of the Longview column. Katie, it's a pleasure to see you again and thank you for joining our podcast. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So let's let's just dive in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to start at um, a broad level and focus on, I think, the topic of fun, which is US equities and what can probably be described as the world's most reluctant rally of all time. Yeah. Everything's going up. It seems like nobody's happy about it. In fact, I think you described it as everybody's miserable about it. What do you make of this strange environment we're in? It is quite weird, isn't it? Because on paper, you look at US stocks, the S&P is up about, what, 14% mm-hmm. so far this year. Mm-hmm. Everyone should be kind of, you know, kick back, relaxing. Yay, you know, nailed the first half. This has been great. But instead, everyone is just worried about everything. And if you look at what was in the year ahead outlooks at the turn of the year from all the kind of big banks and all the big investment houses, everyone was saying, you know, kind of negative to maybe neutral US. And everyone was wrong because nobody saw this AI thing coming and nobody saw this massive leap ahead in this, particularly in this clutch of of seven AI tech-focused stocks, Magnificent Seven, Seven Up, various names have been proposed to us to, to describe Please this don't. phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it's really something, and nobody can figure out at this point whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, whether the rest of the market is going to catch up or whether the AI stocks are going to fall back down to earth. And so we're just caught in this state of limbo where... If you're an investor who is bearish, you can cherry pick enough data to back up your case. And if you're an investor who is bullish, you can cherry pick the data and it's a mess. Yeah. And and certainly you are seeing both sides coming to the fore. So so I I think it's funny right now to watch so many people be quite surprised over and over again by positive job numbers. Mm -hmm. Month after month. Henry Neville, who's a PM in our solutions team, he he owns a hat gifted to him in 2018, so he tells us, that reads, the Phillips curve is dead, or something (laughs) sort of similar Mm -hmm. to that at least. And here we are in 2023. It's steeper, and some might say more alive than ever. So what's your view on this recession piece? It seems to be always just around a corner. Mm. I I heard you on a podcast say, no, 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 it's not just around the corner. I think there was a beer involved in that conversation, actually. It's somewhere, somewhere 18 months away. Do you still hold that view? Because it can change by by the day, perhaps even by the hour, Katie. So help me with that. I'm definitely allowed to change my mind, but I did bet a colleague a beer that we wouldn't get a recession in the US until the back end of next year. Mm Which, I don't know, maybe I'm being a bit too optimistic or, 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 or daft. <laughs> I said, but... is it optimistic? I don't know where optimism and recession comes to in a <laughs> yeah. sentence together. But, but you know, I can change my definitions as I go along. <laughs> but the, there, is, um, there is a certain element of that. So everybody went into this year again expecting a US recession, just saying there is no way you can get through 500 basis points of rate hikes in pretty much a straight line from the Fed 
without the system creaking, without us entering some sort of recession. And it's just not happened. And the jobs numbers are, you know, the jobs numbers are always a bit of a kind of coin toss, right? It's always, a, you know, so we used to have a, a sweepstake in the office when I was at the Wall Street Journal. You would just sort of put a number in a hat and whichever one came closest <laughs> to the actual payrolls number won, you know, the pile of pound coins that were in there. Because it's just, you know, it's a fool's errand trying to predict payrolls. But the direction of travel... Nonetheless, this year is interesting. The market is consistently underestimating where the jobs market is going to be, like every single month. <laughs> so it comes in below where the actual yeah. you know, number prints. And so something has gone wrong in terms of the ability of the smartest minds in the business to predict what is going on with the jobs market. And I think, you know, there's something you know, in the manufacturing piece here, in the supply piece here, which is, yeah. it's off something yeah. feels off let's turn to bond markets we talk about equities but let's turn to bonds yeah this is and that that'll take us into this broader discussion which is what we're here to talk about in, around liquidity right what's your perspective on this divergence in mm. the markets where companies who are solid excellent ratings some might say household names even that no problem getting access mm. to capital yet anybody who's got anything a little funky, anything a little different, anything a little... Well, they're having a very different experience, it seems to me. What, what do you make of that? What do you make of the expectations around defaults or the, the, the nervousness absent those real mm. kind of high-quality credit yeah. risks? Yeah, the way bankers in the debt capital market space put it to me is that it is very much a two-tier market now. Mm -hmm. So exactly as you were describing... If you are a big, reliable company with a good rating, then sure, there are there are plenty of, of investors out there who are more than happy to give you their money. Everyone loves investment grade. You know, there's a lot of kind of, you know, there's, there's a bullish camp and a bearish camp around, around stocks, particularly in, in the US. But there's a pretty consistent voice coming from the buy side, which is that everybody loves investment grade debts. These things don't really default. And, you know, unless something truly terrible happens and people are just loving scooping up that yield. You know, yeah. there is yield available yes. on, on IG debt for the first time that people can remember for a long time. Mm -hmm. And they're not having to go, you know, too far down the credit curve, too, down, too far down the kind of, you know, Looney Tunes risk curve to kind of get some returns that they're happy with. They can just sit in like AAA debt and get what? you know, four, four five, five, you know, yep. that'll do, that'll do nicely. And companies are also, from what I understand, bending over backwards to keep hold of those investment grade ratings. You do not want to be a fallen angel at this point. You don't want to fall into junk ratings because who boy, when you next come to refinance your debt, the borrowing cost is going to really hurt. Yeah. So companies are working hard to make sure they're doing stuff that is kind of friendly to investors, which is another kind of part of this virtuous circle. So the inflows into investment grade debt are, are pretty extraordinary. And the support for that asset class is pretty extraordinary. But yeah, if you are in any way any kind of sketchy borrower, the door is pretty closed. It, it's it's very difficult out there. And and. You know, there is a widespread expectation that uh, there will be a big pickup in default rates among high yield borrowers. But also, if you talk to people who invest in, in the credit space, they're like, 
that's kind of how this stuff is supposed to work. This like back in the olden days when interest rates were higher. <laughs> you know? Where there used to be interest rates. When there used to be interest yeah. rates and money cost something. This yeah. this was how it worked. And so actually pretty people are pretty comfortable with that. So um so yeah, it is a really kind of two speed market in credit. I think that's right. I think the other piece that's interesting is there's a lot of precision in looking at where the credit risk really lies. Mm -hmm. There's the danger of saying it's a corporate real estate piece. It might not be all of a corporate real estate piece. Yeah. It might be at a certain level and below and held in a concentration in certain regional banks. We'll get to that. <laughs> um, so let's. you recently wrote about how fund managers and allocators um, alike are increasingly wary around market mm. liquidity. Maybe they've been burned by their positioning earlier in the year when they're they're sort of avoiding taking directional bets until the macro kind of picture becomes clearer, though clarity on the macro picture, as we've talked about, might not come for some time. How do you think the effects around liquidity in the market, how do you think that is impacting liquidity? And if everyone takes a step back, as it were, hmm. does this create a self-fulfilling liquidity problem? Is, is this one of those moments which, if you think it, and you say it, it happens. <laughs> You'll make it true. You'll make it true. I think there is... Certain, so liquidity means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and the, and the context sort of matters here. But certainly one of the things that is generally accepted to contribute to good liquidity, good market functioning, is good two-way flow. You know, people who, you know, take one side of a bet, people who take another, another side of the bet, you know, good volumes, good flows, it tightens prices, it creates a kind of well-functioning, healthy system. At the moment, everyone is very nervous. So um, as we were saying at the top of this conversation, you know, there's a pretty much everyone went into this year short or neutral US. Yep. They've been ironed out. Everyone went into it short Japan, ironed out. Yeah. Everyone went into it short Europe, Ironed out. So everyone has been wrong about everything, mm -hmm. basically, which is not a super place to be. But in addition, so again, everyone ran into this year thinking, OK, we're going to get a recession because you can't have 500 basis points of hikes without getting a recession. And then, boom, along came January payrolls, which were massive. And so the market, you know, particularly the rates market, has to completely recalibrate and say, OK, we, we got this wrong. The Fed's going to have to keep on hiking. So let's move back into a kind of inflationary bet back into a rate hiking bet and then all of a sudden banks start failing everywhere on both you know, sides <laughs> you know that's right and, and let's be with the bank failing piece it's it's sort of interesting that that didn't despite yeah. bank fa it didn't trigger that cascade and liquidity crisis that perhaps perhaps was thought of and that is that because we're expecting intervention yeah at every so, so is this going to be one of those moments where each one of the trigger points gets stemmed at source by some intervention. Do you think that's the story? I, dif difficult to say, right? So it, I agree. It didn't cause kind of, you know, cats and dogs living together, end of the universe, awful kind of, you know, just a, a, an economic train wreck. But it did catch the market offside. So on that kind of bit about the, the liquidity element, it, it, it made... It, it just upset everyone's portfolios and created a lot of volatility in the market, which probably isn't isn't great for liquidity broadly defined. But in terms of yeah, the, the lack of a kind of um, 
you know, economic hellscape on the back of what happened with banks in, in the US and Europe. You know, there was this expectation that, OK, this is going to absolutely stamp on lending. Yeah. This is going to make a bad situation much worse. Yeah. But also there was a genuine fear that it could become a sprawling banks crisis because everyone just has that muscle memory from 2008 and thinks, are we going to get this all over again? So my acid test for things being bad is when I get asked to go on telly. Because, you know, when... <laughs> when <kind> okay, of <laughs> noted, everyone. No. So when I'm on telly, you know things are bad. Because, you know, the kind of Channel 4 or BBC or whatever it is says, quick, we need to get someone from the FT to tell us whether we're all doomed. Yeah. And so on the Credit Suisse weekend, um, I was doing a few kind of TV bits and I was on Channel 4 News and, and they asked me the question that I really did not want them to ask which was, you know, so are we going to get a, a banking crisis in the UK? They didn't go as far as saying, um, should I get my money out of, out of NatWest? But yeah. it was, you know, are we going to get a banking crisis in the UK? And I thought, there's no good answer here. But I thought, you know... <laughs> no <laughs> pint of beer was bought at that point. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I thought that, look, it's it's theoretically possible. But if I were to say that, then I would be shouting fire in a crowded cinema. And I didn't think it was that likely because of all the reforms we've had since 2008 so I thought if I say it's all going to be fine there's a risk that I will end up looking like an idiot later on but I'm willing to take that risk and so it's I the better alternative in that so instance I opted for idiot and it worked out because my, my gut instinct was that the reforms that we've seen since 08 just neutralized that risk I think what it also showed was the demonstrable difference between the way that regulatory reform had been in affected in Europe yeah. versus yeah. the response in the US where you had this two-tier system. So not surprisingly, you know, the, the phone calls for many were where do I move my money out of the regional banks? And JP Morgan Chase was... Well, our door is open. Our door is open. You are welcome. Yeah. Um, what, what I should say, though, is do we think... Well, what I should ask is do you think the story has stopped on the regional bank piece or are you somebody who's also thinking, hang on, there is this corporate real estate piece. There is yeah. a high concentration of some of that book of business on the balance sheets mm -hmm. of regional banks in the US. And we saw some stemming post SVB, but do we think it's stopped or do we think that this is waiting to be in a, a, different, a different time, maybe but a very recognisable yeah. crisis. I mean, look, if I knew, I would probably be sitting on a yacht somewhere, playing around <laughs> my Bloomberg machine, putting on some positions. What I love is playing around your Bloomberg machine <laughs> on a yacht. Excellent. <laughs> right, marvellous. So, look, I, I don't know, and I don't think anyone else knows, but I think everyone is very conscious that, you know, it took a few months after the failure of Bear Stearns for anything else terrible to happen. So... You know, again, there's this muscle memory that several times in that kind of 07, 08 build up period to kind of Armageddon that people thought, OK, this is sorted now and it wasn't sorted. That said, the policy response has been forceful and there is, as you say, a sort of two tier system in the US. So the, the big US banks and they are enormous appear fine. So this is one of the funny things, right, is that, you know, a lot of people in the UK were like, Silicon Valley who now? Never yes. heard of them. Hello. These banks are like as big as a really top tier European bank. Um, they just happen to be in the States and happen to be regional, so we've, we've never heard of them. But, you know, the, but the, the absence of an immediate sort of hellscape in commercial real estate, real estate is 
quite comforting. And it, I don't want to say, you know, crisis over, you know, mission accomplished. But I do want to say that it could have been an awful lot worse. Yeah. So let, let's talk about m- managing liquidity. There's, there's this excellent golden rule, I think you've mentioned before, about how in times of crisis, a crisis even, managers sell what they can sell, um, not what they necessarily want to sell. Mm. So do you think that's a mantra that's been absorbed by the industry since the LDI crisis or the COVID sell-off? Or is it something that the market just knows to be true mm. and would rather not have to face? I think it's always been true. And I think everyone has always known it's true. And I think it was particularly the case, you know, during the COVID crisis when treasuries started to sell off really hard. That was my kind of head in my hands moment explaining to news editors that this is really bad. There's no way back from this. We need some sort of intervention here. Um, The LDI crisis is kind of your perfect example of, you know, everyone trying to get out of a rates product all at the same time. And it's never a good look. So I think this has always been an issue. But what I think exacerbates it now, when I speak to senior traders, they say one of the problems we have as banks now is that asset management firms are much bigger than us. You know, and it used to be that they could throw pretty much any order at us and we could say, fear not, I'm a massive bank, I can handle this, I can warehouse the risk. They can't do that anymore because of the, um, again, because of the reforms that we saw after 08. And so the risk effectively gets shunted to the buy side, it gets shunted to the asset managers and investment firms and away from the banks. All things being equal, that's probably healthy, but it does just mean that when everyone is running to the exit all at the same time, that banks are stuck and they can't keep spreads as tight as we all like them to be sort of on normal normal days in the office um, because their ability to absorb this is just gone. And let's be clear, banks are not only liquidity providers, period. I mean, that is what we have seen post-crisis. And yeah. it's an interesting place where we think about how we trade and where we execute. Yeah. Yeah. And so do the banks, right? So, again, Correct. this is something that I've heard is that, you know, banks know which clients are sort of nice human beings and which clients are less nice human beings. And which which are the funds that have, like, you know messed us over in the past by like, you know, placing orders that are particularly unfriendly to us or placing the same order with five different banks and not telling us and then, you know, we end up getting kind of egg on our face. And so what what I've heard from them is that the clients that they know and trust were kind of taken into a circle of trust and it was like, okay, we can get through this period because we know that you're not going to try and do us over and you know that we're not going to try and do you over and let's just try and get through this few days without anything breaking. So I think there's a real kind of what goes around comes around thing in terms of your relationship with banks at those moments. I agree. And it is about how you, the quality of your banks, the quality of the liquidity, the providers, the quality of the scale of your organisation to be able to have the elasticity. Yeah. In your own, you know, in your own ecosystem to, yeah. to, to manage these things. Yeah. We talk about liquidity and we talked about it a little bit in, in the sense of a, a negative thing, right? But actually yeah. liquidity enables people to also take advantage, right, of opportunity. As we think about is there opportunity for new investment strategies? Is there, a new, is there opportunity to take advantage of those dislocations or those credit events? Mm. How do you see 
the balance between liquidity as a necessity versus liquidity as a an opportunity and how as we deal with allocators all day we, we try to ensure that flexibility exists so that when there is a dislocation yeah. or when there's an opportunity liquidity is about being able to move dynamically into that space too yeah to my mind liquidity is one of those things that is incredibly boring until it's not right so it's very much like the 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 plumbing in your house right you don't think about it you don't think about how your toilet flushes and your shower works mm -hmm. no one knows how toilets work and showers work it's just i'm not sure i want to <laughs> but now that you've said it maybe i should yeah okay it's it's a dark art <laughs> it's a dark art but it's nice and boring right and you just know that it works and you can turn the yes. taps on and and it's all good what you don't want is either for your house to flood or worse, for your house to catch fire and for you not to be able to turn the taps on and put the fire out. So all of a sudden the plumbing becomes incredibly interesting, having previously been incredibly boring. We saw that writ large in the LDI crisis at the back end of 2022. And, you know, what, what people on, you know, on the buy side and the sell side say to me is that the way that they thought about liquidity management there's before LDI and there's after LDI. And LDI, if that whole crisis did any good for the universe at all, it was to act as that wake-up call to say to people, you need to think about this. You need to think about how you would meet these margin calls in the worst of all possible worlds. You know, no, nobody had stress-tested LDI strategies for gilt yields adding 80 basis points a day because why would you do that? That's ridiculous. That never happens. Now, Until all of a sudden, did. it's happened. Yes. And so... People are thinking, oh, OK, we need to rethink buffers and we need to rethink these dynamic hedging strategies. And this is really cutting through to how investors think about their portfolios, I think. I couldn't agree more. I think what was interesting is we helped manage and, and looked after clients, quite frankly, in the LDI space in the UK. What was interesting is when you then span, you know, took a look back and looked at the world um, they went, no, 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 that's just, this is, that's a phenomenon mm -hmm. that's just in the UK. And then we had regional banks. Yes. And yes. then, oh, oh, oh. I, not just a phenomenon in the UK. I think, I think the interesting piece on liquidity is about not expecting just a repeat of something that's happened elsewhere. It's to look at liquidity in the round and say, um, and you heard us say before, Liquidity shocks come from LDI for sure, or they come from sovereign wealth, or whatever. Or they, yeah. sorry, they come from SVB, but they come from sovereign wealth funds suddenly yeah. getting a call from their government saying we need cash. It comes yes. from every part of this, and I think it's a very interesting place that liquidity, I think, is very much mm. in the minds of everybody right now yeah but also not to keep banging on about post 08 reforms but there has been a big push sort of pulling all types of investment management firms all different pockets of the buy side into cleared products into products where they need to post margin where sometimes you know where that does create overnight calls for cash you know we've just seen eu pensions drawn into these clearing requirements and that was a long time coming and, and they were very well prepared for it. But nonetheless, there is a whole universe of investors out there that have never previously really thought about margin requirements and, exactly and all of this, right. that now have to, and they need to be able to respond to it cleverly in a way that doesn't eat away at their returns too badly. So they are definitely thinking about this. And, and as you say, you know, 
LDI was LDI. It was, you know, Brits going to Brit. It's like, yeah, you know, right. what, what are those crazy Brits up to What now? are they doing over there? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Those jaunty Brits. <laughs> but, you know, you can... I was looking at um, a note the other day from Absolute Strategy Research who have very gamely looked through financial stability reports from all kinds of different organisations, IMF, Bank of England, you know, the, the whole nine yards. God love them. Thank you for your service. But what is coming out consistently from this is that all these kind of multilateral organisations and, and policy-making organisations are thinking about non-bank financial institutions. Like, OK, we've cauterized a lot of risks in the banking sector. We've kind of let the buy side kind of run away with it since then and do its own thing. We need to think carefully about whether we're letting risks build up here. And some of the risks that they're talking about is around certain pockets of the buy side all pointing in the same direction with their positioning which is exactly what we saw in LDI and when when that goes pear-shaped there's only one exit and, and it and it's not pretty they've talked about you know clearing requirements they've talked about how that's a potential source of risk so look you know financial stability reports exist to tell people about things that could potentially go wrong and 99% of them won't Nonetheless, this is something that is reaching the radar of policymakers to think we, we just need to be ready for these sorts of eventualities. Now, the, I think the good news is that the Bank of England played a blinder, honestly, around LDI. You know, it, it didn't say, OK, let's hit that big button marked cut rates because there's some sort of crisis going on here. Because you can't when UK inflation is, I think at the time it was running in double figures yes. or close to it. Ish. So you have to have these laser-guided missions to put out these little fires. And actually, the, the, the Bank of England has, has drawn a lot of kind of praise for what it did in that moment for doing exactly that. It's like, here's our laser-guided mission. We're going to get rid of this horrible risk, and then we're going to pull out again, and you're on your own. We're not going to cut rates just to make everyone's problems go away. Um, so I think that's the playbook here, is that when you get these horrible liquidity blow-ups policymakers, my hunch is, will we'll jump in, solve a discrete problem and jump out again. So let me, let's close then mm. with, we talk about liquidity, let's, let's talk about illiquid assets. Yeah. And, and how their marked prices certainly <laughs> can suddenly be written down, although we haven't seen yeah. a ton of that, right? Not yet, anyway. Um, but written down just at the moment that people probably want to sell them. Um, I think there's always going to be a demand for liquids. I'm, I'm not here to say there's not a demand for liquids at all. And certainly from institutions who can hold them for a long time, right? You, you, you're good for 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah. Um, kind of rock on. Yeah. But do you think that the demand is going to be as large as it has been certainly in the last five, ten years? Short answer is no. Um but, um, yes, yeah, so when I talk to asset managers, wealth management, wealth managers, those sorts of people around private assets, illiquid assets, one of the things that has slightly spooked them is, that, is the denominator effect, right? So all of the, the value of all your lovely public market holdings got put through a wood chipper last year. And so all of a sudden, a much bigger slice of your Correct. portfolio is in, like, infrastructure assets yep. and, you know car parks and dams and god knows what else um you know relative to the the public markets that are typically more liquid and th this is a bit of a this is a bit of a problem as you say write downs seem inevitable at this point 
But the sense I'm getting is that there's not a huge demand to get out of these things because you'd have to take a big marked market loss on it and maybe you can just sit on it for a few years and make the problem go away. But although there is quite a sort of flourishing cottage industry in sort of secondary market trading around private uh, equity assets. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, and, and by the way, it's an interesting one because it's not necessarily that you're out distressed. Mm. These can be trading par. It's just another mechanism of, of, of attacking the denominator effect. It's yeah. getting yourself back into a position where your portfolio isn't too heavily weighted in assets yeah. that you don't have access to. Because at some point, even if you're secondary trading at par at the moment, or better than, mm. at some point you cut deeper. And that's an inevitable yeah. part of this, right? Yeah. So the so the kind of the, the mood music from that part of the market is no, people don't want to sell. It's it's painful, it's embarrassing, it's all those other things. But do people want to take on more exposure to private assets over the next year or two? Probably not, given that kind of skew-if nature of the um, portfolio makeup at the moment. So um I don't think it's necessarily a train wreck. I do think some of the kind of easier times for things like the private equity industry are behind them. I also think they are incredible salespeople. So they are very, very skilled at telling you that everything is fine. And, you know, good luck to them. But uh, yes, the the bet has to be that that space will slow down markedly over the next couple of years. Brilliant. Katie, it's such a pleasure to have you. I, I genuinely could talk to you for the next hour and that would be... A, <laughs> But that, then I get into trouble with your editors. Thank you again for taking time to join us. No, it's been thank brilliant. you for having me. Nice to be here.